Our reading today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept so they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who, did, had, not, who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Erower, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, 
in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we just thank you for this day in celebration of graduates and um, one of your own daughters being sent out, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit guiding them along this way, Lord, and we uh, praise you on this day of Pentecost when you uh, opened up your spirit to your people, Lord, um, the very guarantor of the promise that you made of the law being written on our hearts, Lord, and we ask in this day that that same spirit would come and open up our hearts to what you have today in your word, and that this word would pierce us and show us what it means to follow after you and to be uh, men and women after your own heart, God. So, Lord, uh, in this time, uh, bless your people and give your word success. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christian, and thank you for reading that very difficult passage for us this morning. Some of those names were quite challenging towards the end, and he was a champion to press through. You know, there's a rule of thumb when you read a passage like that. The rule of thumb is, if you don't know what it, what it, how to actually pronounce it, just do so boldly. <laughs> just do so boldly, and no one will know, and they likely won't correct you. Um, so much to say about this passage. It's really not much of a celebrated passage in the life of David. In fact, as we're as we were having it read a second ago, it's not like David and Goliath, it's not like David and Jonathan, it's not like so many of the passages, even the one we looked at last week from 1 Samuel 24, if you were with us, we looked at David's um, protection and preservation of Saul when he had the opportunity to lay him low in the cave. These are celebrated passages, this one not so much, and I'm not really sure why, because this passage is absolutely remarkable in the life of David. And I think we learned some, some amazing lessons um, about the man of God, David, but even about the gospel itself from this glorious passage. I remember when I was a young boy, I had this really kind of favorite book, I'm guessing seven or eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. It was full of children's stories, children riddles, children jokes, all kinds of things such as that. I used to read it all the time. I felt it was my sober duty to wield these riddles and jokes on everyone that I came in contact with multiple times so that they'd be sure that they got them. And I don't know whatever happened to the book, but some of those are still kind of lodged away in my mind, you know, useless kind of information that we keep in our minds. And I uh, was hit by one of those stories just this week as I was reflecting on this passage. It resurrected from the filing cabinet way in the back. And I thought, I think this story actually plays in to what is going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. The story is of a, of a young girl who is having a dream. She's running from a lion. She's racing through the woods, ducking behind bushes and hedges and just simply trying to survive. She winds up spotting a tree with some low-lying limbs that she thinks she can get to and jump on and, 
and crawl up, and maybe in the nick of time she'll be preserved. Well, just that happened. She was able to reach the tree and climb up, and the lion lunged up the tree and growled and clawed, but couldn't quite reach her. And she, like many of us, just gave a deep sigh of relief until she heard a hissing sound which was a very large poisonous snake that had wrapped itself around a limb that was only 10 feet north of her head at that particular moment. She could see the snake unwinding from its coil, beginning to make his way down to her, and she was stuck between what we would call the proverbial rock and a hard place. A lion at the bottom ready to consume her, a poisonous snake at the top ready to kill her, and what does she do to get away? Well, you know, she woke up. It was a dream, after all. I said that right at the very beginning of the story, but, of course, by that moment, you had forgotten that fact. Oh, it would be so nice if we could get out of our problems that way, wouldn't it? How we could just wake up and all of a sudden the difficulties of our lives just would disappear. Some of us have been in places where we have thought we're caught in a bad dream. We're going to wake up at some point and we're going to realize all the things that seem like they were about to undo us, about to destroy us, are actually just figments of our imagination that we are caught in some terrible nightmare. Truth is, for most of us, that's not the case. The troubles that we walk through in life, we're not dreaming about them. They're real. And the troubles that David faced, the troubles that we see even in this passage, are real. It's easy for us to read the story of David and think superhero, Captain America, Spider-Man, Bad-Man. This is some larger-than-life figure. This is not someone who is who's just a normal man, a sinner, struggling, seeking to be faithful to the Lord, on the run for his life. But that's who's in this passage. Let's remember that. And he, with every turn of the page of 1 Samuel, seems to be hit with another situation where he has, as it were, a lion growling at the bottom of the tree and a poisonous snake coming down from the top. And the question is, how in the world is he going to get out of it? Well, we've come a long way from 1 Samuel 24, which is where we were last week, when we talked about David's saving of the life of Saul there in the wilderness of En Gedi. From chapter 24 to chapter 30, I'd like to tell you that things have gotten better for David. But in fact, they have not. They've gotten weirder strangely weird, as you'll see in this particular text. After sparing Saul's life again in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, David finally decides, listen, one day this guy's going to catch up with me. I better get out of Dodge entirely. He leaves the nation of Israel. And I want, where he goes doesn't seem to be the smartest of moves, but it tells you how desperate David was feeling. He moves from the nation of Israel to the nation of Philistia. That's right, the Philistines. Yes, Goliath, those Philistines. That, that nation 
that warred against the people of Israel over and over and over was a constant thorn in the side of their flesh. David said, it would be better to live in Philistia than to continue to run from Saul in the land of Israel. And we see David in chapter 27 pull out all of his diplomatic gifts and he begins to make an alliance with the king of Gath and the king of Gath actually gives him a small little village there within his precinct, a village called Ziklag that's prominent here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. David and all of his men, all of their families, their wives and their children move from Israel into the land of Philistia. And there in the previous chapter, chapter 29, David is coming away from a meeting with the army of Philistia as they're actually mounting forces against Israel and they decide that things would be pretty complicated for David if he was caught with the army of Philistia as they're aligning against Israel and he himself is an Israelite. And so they say, you know what, just go home. Just go home. And he said, okay, you don't have to ask me twice. And he begins to make his way back to Ziklag. Maybe a little time for rest. David said, no rest. From page to page to page, he finds himself in challenging, life-threatening situations. And now he goes back to Ziklag. Here he's going to be with his wife and his children. And as soon as he arrives on the scene, what's happened? Well, the city has been burned to the ground. He finds a smoldering heap. All of his children, all of his men's children, all of their wives have been abducted, held now in captivity by who, who, who knows... And there's no sign of them anywhere, and there's, there's no sign of who did these things, no leads, no direction. He's simply forced to sit there in the rubble and imagine the worst. It's an overwhelming moment. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. Running to Philistia to be saved from the life-threatening attempts of Saul given a little place called Ziklag for his family hopefully to be safe in Gath as he continues to go out and war, comes back for this momentary rest and the place that they're calling a temporary home, they've been there a little over a year at this point, he finds to be nothing more than ash and all of his loved ones are gone. And he's set to wonder who is the raiders who have come in and destroyed the place that we have been given. And where is my wife? What's happening to her? Where are my children? What might be being done to them? It's the, it's the worst possible nightmare imaginable. It's, it's being kicked while you're down. And it's at this particular moment you begin to wonder, can it get any worse? One commentator put it this way, quoting from the Psalms, where it says, you know, there's sorrow in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sometimes that morning is stretched out. And after the morning, it's like another disaster hits you in the late afternoon, the next day. He's beginning, of course, to live the kind of life where we talk about waiting for the other shoe to fall. When something good happens, he's kind of wondering, oh yeah, don't trust that. Something more terrible is about to happen. You've been there. You know what it's like to hit rock bottom, to call it rock bottom, and then to have the rock bottom give way to a deeper rock bottom. To say that there's no way that it can get any worse, and then it does. 
To say there's no way that I can handle more and then you're forced to have to handle more and then you can't handle it. It's why verse 4 makes entire sense. It's one of the saddest verses in all of 1 Samuel. You read, David and his people were with him, who were with him, raised up their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. You ever run out of tears? You ever run out of the energy to weep? If you've experienced that kind of sorrow, you know what it's like to lose, as it were, any desire for life. Lord, just, just take me. Meaning that not necessarily in a kind of death wish, in a kind of suicidal threat or attempt, but meaning that my soul is so wrecked, my life is so torn apart that right now from where I sit, I can't imagine going on. Death would most certainly be better. Some of you have been there. Many more of us in this room will be there over the course of our lives. We'll know this kind of sorrow, this kind of devastation. Now, having sat with many people going through suffering, having sat with my own family going through suffering, having sat with myself going through suffering, I realize that many questions arise in our heads when we are going through this kind of sorrow and turmoil. And one of the questions and one of the impulses that rises up within us at these kinds of moments of sorrow is an impulse towards anger. We begin to ask a question, who's responsible for this? Who's causing all of this to happen? That's exactly what happens in verse 6 of our text. Verse 6 is the men surrounding David who have now come back to Ziklag waiting for their wives and their children, looking to put their feet up for just a split second, who have been following David in the wilderness now for years, have decided, you know what, you're the problem. We're going to stone you. We're going to stone you, David. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. We wedded ourselves to you at the beginning because of the anointing that you had upon your life with regards to king, which we are doubting now, by the way. And here is the situation. If we get rid of you, maybe our life will get better. You know, standing next to you is like, you know, you wouldn't want to do it in a thunderstorm. Let's put it that way. Because I would most certainly get struck, though it's one in... A hundred million chance that that would happen. It would happen if we were standing next to you, David. David, you are, as it were, the curse that's fallen upon all of us. This is a far cry. Do you remember the days when David's approval ratings were out the roof? (laughs) Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Let's put him on the throne right now. Those days are long gone. David is walking through some of the most difficult times of his entire life. He's had Saul being tried to kill him. He's now had his home ransacked and destroyed. He has no idea where his wife and his children are. And the men who have served with him for years are turning upon him and threatening to kill him. Now whatever is going on in your life, and I'm sure it is significant, can it compare to that? This is is serious. This man is being torn at at the seams. His life is falling apart, which is why I find it so surprising. In fact, almost miraculous, spirit-led on a day of Pentecost that we read this verse in verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now what I want to do for just a couple of minutes is talk 
about what it means to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. What does that mean? How do we do that in a moment like this? How does David do that in this moment? But how do we do that? In the moments of sorrow and tragedy that are tearing at our lives even now, have in the past, or will for certainly in the future. How do we do it? And I want us to look briefly at three things. I want us you to see that we've got to first turn to the promises of God. We've got to first turn to the promises of God. Then secondly, we've got to trust in the providence of God. And then thirdly, we've got to live by the grace of God. We've got to turn to the promises of God, trust in the providence of God, and live by the grace of God. Look at what he does in verse 7. We're told that he requests from Abiathar the priest to bring me the ephod. And notice, with the ephod, we're told that he inquired of the Lord. And he asked the Lord this question, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue them. David, in the moment of his sorrow, in the moment of his depression, in the moment of his discouragement, when his life is falling apart, he doesn't do what our tendency is to do, which is to turn to everywhere but God. To look down into the sorrows and the rubble and the ashes of our life. To look out to others to be many messiahs or saviors for us. To somehow give us what it is that we need to get by. No, instead he looks up to the Lord. He begins to inquire of the Lord. Lord, what does this mean? What do I do? I don't have strength in myself. I need to be strengthened in you. We might even say he is seeking for the encouragement of the Lord. That word encourage literally means to give courage. He is looking for the strengthening that comes from the encouragement from drinking in the presence of God surrounded by the promises of God. He's doing what Psalm 121 tells us today. From where does my help come? The psalmist raises his voice. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's easy in these moments to blame God, isn't it? In some ways, we might even expect that David would say, you know what, I'm done with this this God of Israel who anoints and then doesn't seem to come through with his promises. The twists and turns in the brokenness of my life, I've had enough of it. That's not where David is. And let me tell you, it's because it's spirit wrought. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David in the moment of his anointing. It's been the Spirit of the Lord from the beginning. This is not David who has a great heart, who's just awesome. This is the Spirit of the Lord transforming a man through the trials and the situations of life into conformity to the character of God. That's what's happening And that's why in this moment he strengthens himself in the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. And he does it with what's called the ephod here. This is the garment that the priest would wear for his mediatory work, which had those mysterious stones in them. You remember these shadowy texts like Exodus 28 and other texts that we see in 1 Samuel 14 and 1 Samuel 23. We can look back through the book of Samuel and you'll see these, the Urim and the Thummim. These two stones that were used to cast lots, used to inquire of the Lord, to divine the Lord's mind over particular circumstances. This was the ordained means that the Lord gave 
to the priest, to the king, to the leaders of Israel, to at particular times seek the Lord's specific answers over how it is that they should act. The Lord had ordained this means for that to happen. And David inquired through the means that the Lord gave. And as he did, the Lord graciously told him exactly what was going to happen. He said, yes, go take the band. Pursue them. You will be successful and you will bring them back home. Now, some of us in this room, and maybe you were like me when I was reading this text, I thought to myself, I want an urim and a thummim. Somebody give me one of those. Where do you get them? Does Walmart carry them? Amazon, can I get, can I, where can I get one of these? You know the old magic eight balls that we have when we were growing up? Ask it a question and let the answer surface. And when you don't like the answer, shake it again and don't you know, shake it again. You know. Until you get the one that you're looking for. We're not talking about that kind of mysterious and even haphazard approach to trying to divine the Lord's will. The recognition is this was a decreed means, an ordained means that the Lord gave to the leadership of Israel for a provisional time to give them specific direction over critical moments and how it is that they needed to act. Now let me tell you, you may be tempted to think, oh well, if I had one of those, my life would turn out smoothly. I give you David. <laughs> David had those. Did his life turn out smoothly? And let me also just suggest that though the Lord here gives David clarity with regards to the end, God still ha- leaves so much shrouded in mystery for David. We're not told at this point in the text who even destroyed the city of Ziklag. David doesn't even know. Back in those days, the Amalekites wouldn't have been like ISIS in our day. A crisis happens in a major city and ISIS a few days later or a few hours later takes responsibility, credit for it as if to wave a badge of pride over what was accomplished. That kind of stuff didn't happen. The Amalekites didn't go around spray painting on city hall walls. You know, Amalek is king, you know, and they... That's just not what happened here. They actually left without a trace. They had no idea who the source was. They had no idea where they had even gone. But this is what God told David. He said, David, pursue them and you'll have, you'll have victory. You don't have a question to, well, who is it that I pursue? Where is it that I go? Seems a little bit like the call of Abraham. Go to a place that I will show you. <laughs> start walking. And as you start walking, I'll guide you. I'll guide you. Trust in the promises of the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Trust in the promises of the Lord. He'll give direction, but you're still going to have to exercise faith. And this is why we turn from the promises of the Lord into trusting in the providence of the Lord. Okay, that's why that's really important. Because as the story unfolds and as David acts out in faith, the Lord begins to show his face and the steps that David is taking. And he does it in the most ironic of ways. As David begins to pursue the band, they come across this dehydrated, half-dead Egyptian slave in the text. We read about it in verses 11 to 15. And they pick him up along the way and they begin to talk to him, but he, he won't speak back because he's almost dead. He needs strengthening and so they give him water and they give him 
a cake of figs and they give him two clusters of raisins. And then after he's had this feast, he begins to pipe up and he says, yes, I'm an Egyptian slave and I was dumped here by my master of one of the Amalekites because I was no use to him anymore as a burden because I was just a poor, sick Egyptian. And we had just come from raiding the city of Ziklag. I'm sorry, come again. Uh, we've, just come from, we've just come from raiding the city of Ziklag. You have, have you? Uh, that happens to be my city. Those happen to be the women of our city, the children of our city. That's, who's your master? Don't you see how the Lord's providence is working here? Now, now here, there's a huge irony that's sitting here in the text, and the irony is this, that the master... In this particular case, who, who dropped the dead weight of this Egyptian slave so, so that he could, he could pursue more quickly to escape from those who might attack, actually left, as it were, breadcrumbs to exactly where it was that he was going. The one in whom he had planned to leave for dead is the one who actually the Lord uses to execute his own future death. Trust in the providence of God. You see how this text is teaching us that. Saying turn to the promises of God. Listen to what he says. But trust in the providence of God. There are so many things that you don't know. There are so many mysteries as you're walking through life. But as you walk through life, trusting in the promises of God and doing the right next thing, he begins to shed light in the moment that you need it. And usually, friends, not a moment sooner. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Usually not a moment sooner. It's usually in the moment where you're like, I'm not sure if I should take this step. Oh, there's the light. Well, that was kind. (laughs) It's because God is really committed to this thing called faith. He gives us revelation, enough revelation to trust him. We know his characters. We know how things are planned. We know that he's going to complete that which he's begun. We can trust him by faith, but he doesn't say what's going to happen tomorrow. You're going to have to trust him with that. You're going to have to walk into the mystery of that. But what you will find is as you do, as you've turned to the promises of God and you've trusted in his providence, things begin to reveal themselves. The Lord begins to show his path. Isn't it remarkable too how it's often the small things in life? Who would have thought, oh, the key to this passage will be a half-dead, dehydrated Egyptian slave. The key figure... It's not the master, it's not David, it's not the men. In fact, God's promises wouldn't come true, humanly speaking, without the half-dead Egyptian slave. And isn't it oftentimes the smallest things in our life that make the biggest differences? We think it's going to be the big things, but really it's the small things. It's the conversation that you had when you were a teenager with someone who shared with you the gospel. It was that relationship that the Lord forged. It was that momentary experience that began to set your sights on a new pathway that has unfolded in the Lord's blessing, right? That's often the way that the Lord works. It's been true in history. And if you chart back over the course of your life, you'll find it's true in your life as well. We turn to God's promises. We trust in His providence. But thirdly, we live by His grace. We live by his grace. The Egyptian leads David and his men to the very place where the Amalekites are. And what are they doing? Well, of course, they're 
they are partying hardy, like it's 1999. They are eating, they are drinking, they are dancing, we're told, all over the land, which means that similar to Saul in the previous passage, yet really different, they are in a very vulnerable and compromised position. Because it's when you're in festivity where you put your guard down. It's when you feel like you're in peacetime and things are going well where you begin uh, to, to be unguarded with regards to the attacks that might come your way. And that's exactly what happens to the Amalekites. The Lord not only gives David the right direction to go to the right place, he brings him there at the right time. He brings him there at the right time. We're told in verse 16 that from twilight to the evening of the next day, David and his men struck down the Amalekites. Now, I'd love to tell you a lot about the Amalekites. It would be a fun history lesson. Let me just note this, though. The Amalekites stem from Esau, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the line that becomes the promised line for the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the rejected line that develops the people of Amalekites. What's that mean is the Amalekites are like cousin nations to the people of Israel and they are a nation that continues to go after Israel throughout their entire history. In fact, when the people of Israel are leaving Egypt and they're most vulnerable, this motley crew running through the wilderness, you remember this? Moses is leading them. Do you know who the first people group is that comes in and tries to destroy Israel? The Amalekites. That's who it is. And in fact, Moses tells the people of God on his deathbed, when you get the first shot that you can, you need to wipe out the Amalekites. And they don't. Which is why, in their unfaithfulness, you see this story unfold in the life of David. Which is also why you see David seek to leave nobody standing. He's actually picking up an old commandment from Moses to lay low the Amalekites who are a wicked nation that sought to destroy Yahweh's nation, Israel, his enemies. And so David here is actually fulfilling what should have been done many, many years ago. And he has total success. We're told that he recovers every single thing that they took, all the wives and the children. But then, of course, it gets interesting. It gets interesting because you may remember in those verses that Christian read to us that as they were making their way down to where the Amalekites were, there were a couple hundred of the men, 200, who stayed behind at the brook of Bezer. And they did because they were really weary and they couldn't go on any longer. And so they left some of the equipment, they left some of the men there, and the rest of the men went on to fight the war. Well, they fought the war and they got all the plunder. Well, let me tell you. The guys who fought the war said, you know what? There's 200 that we left. Those weaklings, those good-for-nothing soldiers who helped us not one iota in all of this, we're not giving them any of the plunder. Sure, we'll let them have their wives and their children. Okay. But we're not going to give them any of the plunder. And David says in verse 23, he says, listen, let me tell you. Brothers, we ought not act this way, and here's why. Would we act this way with the things that Yahweh has given to us? You think, oh, that's interesting. That's a different take. The men who had been victorious over the Amalekites, who had now gotten all of this plunder, you know how they were seeing it. We earned this. We did this. 
It was a works righteousness mentality. We had earned this. What's ours is ours. We, 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 we paid our dues. We did what was expected of us. Why should we be responsible to give to those who did absolutely nothing and actually have been more of a burden to us than a help? Sounds a little bit like that Egyptian, doesn't it? Well, they were just dead weight to us. Why should we give to them grace? And David said, well, I've got a, I've got a reason. God gave this to us. We didn't earn it. Let me, let me go through it with you. It was, it was God who told us that we would be victorious and he gave us the promises. Right at the very beginning. It was God who gave us the Egyptian. Who, who showed us the path on which the Amalekites were. It was God who was with us in the sword which allowed us to be able to lay low the Amalekites and retrieve our women and our children and all of our plunder. This, though God using our effort in the exercise of it, it was God graciously at work giving to us gifts that we don't deserve. Do you see how different that mentality is? David is realizing that this is really a matter of grace. And here's what I love about David at this moment, is it's not grace in an idea sense. It's not grace in a theological concept or principle. It's grace in action. It's grace that begets generosity. It's grace that says what's mine is yours and you can have it if you need it. It's not a kind of works mentality that says what's, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it as best I can. When God and His grace becomes center in your life, stinginess begins to dissipate, and generosity begins to grow. We begin to look at others, though they couldn't help in their weariness, we want them to be blessed. And David, by the end of this passage, you know what he's doing? He's sharing the wealth. He's spreading it around to all of those funny listing names at the end of the chapter. Those are Philistine cities. There's a couple of ways to interpret what David is doing there. He says, here's a present... From Yahweh, based upon the destruction of enemies, he is saying, God is being gracious to you by destroying the Amalekites because likely, you know what the Amalekites have been doing? Probably going to some of those other villages. It's possible that David and his men actually retrieved some of the plunder from those other cities and he was giving back to them and restoring to them the things that were theirs and then on top of it saying, here's an additional blessing from Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you know what he was doing when he did that? David was saying, this is the character of the God that Israel serves. Here in the middle of Philistia, which was a works righteousness, pagan, idolatrous country, he was showing the testimony of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he was saying, our God is a God who doesn't simply give to us if we earn it. Our God is one who gives to us grace because there's no way we could earn it. He loves us even when we fail. He takes care of us because his kindness and his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. David is giving a testimony of the very quality of the nature of the God that we serve and the reason we're in this room today. The reason we're in this room today is not because we came from good stock. We like to think we did. We talk like we do. But do you really want your family history known? Do you, do you really want your own history known? 
No, thank you. We didn't get here because we earned it. We got here because of his grace. He, what we should be in this moment is amazed, as the songwriter says, that we were able to enter while there was still room. How did we get here? How did the likes of us get in here? You know, we were the ones left back at the brook. We, we were the Amalekites. We, we were the ones who try to use people as resources and try to plunder what we can from people to build up ourselves. We're the people who are constantly using others rather than loving others. And yet God was willing in the Lord Jesus Christ to freely give him down so that he could draw us unto himself and make us sons and daughters. To give us grace when we didn't deserve it. And that's what David is showing us here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And he's actually saying, listen... What started out as a tragedy in this passage ends in a gracious triumph. And listen, that's the story of the world, friends. From Genesis 1, a story that started out strong, it's like the anointing of David, to Genesis 3 that begins the unwinding of that which is good, to a litany of disaster throughout the Scriptures, laced with promises and with hope, leading to Christ, who is its ultimate fulfillment, looking to the end of Revelation... When something much greater than the land of Canaan and much greater than Ziklag will come down from the heavens, the new Jerusalem. And when that happens, we will know that this tragedy of a life that we often live genuinely ends in triumph. Triumph of the king. And we're a part of his band. We're a part of his church. The church today, like soldiers laboring in his kingdom, but the church then triumphant, receiving the plunder of our God, receiving the grace that he has won for us. Don't you remember how the parable goes, how the strong man's going to go in and have himself plundered and all of his stuff is going to be taken? Who's that strong man? Well, he's he's nothing more than the, the kingdom of darkness, the evil one himself, the one who thinks he has the power. He's going to get plundered. And you know what? He has been plundered already in Christ. And we haven't even seen the beginning of it yet. Because the fullness of times is yet to dawn. But it's coming, friends. It's coming. Today you may sit in tragedy. But rest assured, triumph is on its way. Turn to the promises of God. Trust in the providence of God. And live by the grace of God. Until we get to see God face to face. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, confirm this message to our hearts. We need to hear it. Uh, Let us hear the resonating truth of the gospel. And let it have its way in our hearts. As we seek more and more day by day to to be submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. Under the kingship of Jesus, our Savior and our King. We ask this in his holy, strong, and precious name. Amen.